My next guest is a former federal chief information officer who served in both political and non-political appointed positions, and he's got a thing or two to say about government performance in delivering on programs, and he's published a book about it. Former IRS and Homeland Security CIO Richard Spires joins me now. Richard, good to have you on. Tom, always good to be on. Thank you. And you have written a pretty weighty tome here on <laughs> the fact that government can deliver. And, of course, that's in contrast to some pretty spectacular failures. I think probably most in people's mind right now is the horrible waste that is coming to light in the misspent funds from COVID relief, how much fraud, how much improper payment there was related there, too. So looking at it from a positive side, what makes you write a book that says, government can deliver? Well, you know, it's interesting in my time in government and also serving government as a contractor, I saw a lot of uh, positive things, okay, that were done in government, but I also saw some of the, uh, let's say, uh, negatives. And over about two decades, I really started to see patterns in what was working in government and Having also spent a lot of time in the private sector, I do believe you can bring some best practices in the private sector, but they need to be modified a bit for government. So when I left uh, DHS about a decade ago, you know, I always thought, man, I want to really try to help government continue to perform and improve. And, you know, I got this idea that I really needed to write my ideas down. And that's what really ended up being this book. And and I've really tried to distill it and hopefully what well, maybe a tome, hopefully it's somewhat entertaining because I try to bring it to life through real vignettes, whether those vignettes were personal to me in dealing in government or whether they were learned vignettes from studying of other programs that did well or didn't do well, or quite a few um, interactions I've had with colleagues and talking about what works in government and what doesn't. Yeah, and there's a couple of anecdotes that are interesting. Somewhere in the middle of the book, you mentioned that you did receive a cut in the budget for business systems modernization at IRS, and you felt that was almost a positive because you could narrow the scope of the program rather than having it spread too thin and nothing coming quite out correctly. Yeah. In fact, I take out that word almost. I think it was a good thing. We were, uh, I, I hate to waste money. And uh, in that situation, I'd entered the IRS to take over the BSM program. And in my first few weeks there, I started to really understand that we just didn't have the management talent. And th this is a perennial problem in many agencies, that management talent to oversight the number of programs and projects we had underway in modernization. So it's like, boy, it'd be better to scale this back to a smaller number where we can really manage them effectively, show we can do this, and then scale up over time as we uh, right the ship and, if you will, bring in more and develop more management talent to oversight these programs and projects. It's a, it's a real theme in the book. And I would say a theme running through the book is the fact that the continuity of the standing workforce just can never be discounted because you talk about the fact that political appointees, even the best intentioned ones, find running a large federal bureaucracy is really difficult. And they often burn out in a couple of years. And that's why we have this often short tenure for so many of them. Yeah, that's right. And I get into a decent amount of depth about comparing and contrasting political appointees. And, and look, I understand the system and, and it makes sense in that regard. But when you compare it to the private sector, like, you know, a simple stat, I mean, the average CEO of private sector corporation is in that job for seven plus years. 
That rarely, rarely happens in a government agency where you have that kind of tenure. And even beyond that, that CEO, where'd that individual come from? Typically, they were promoted from within in that private sector organization, not brought from without. And the other thing, and I spent a decent amount of time at DHS, where we had you know more than 280 political appointees, including myself at the time. But you know, a lot of them, frankly, were ill-suited for the job they were in. And that's not against them. I mean, a lot of them were good policy people, had deep knowledge, very intelligent, capable people, but didn't have the management experience in their background to handle the kind of management responsibilities they were given in government. Those are issues that should be dealt with. And I'm not suggesting we cut back on the number of political appointees. I think that'd be a naive thing to think we would do that. But if you're ahead of an agency and you're recruiting and bringing people in, you know, being very mindful of getting people that have real experience to handle the job you're putting them in is would in and of itself make a significant positive difference. We're speaking with Richard Spires, author, former IRS and Homeland Security CIO, among many other things. And what is the difficulty, or I should say, how should federal managers approach the difficulty with more deafness in the fact that programs often have political expectations and political underpinnings, and yet the standing federal civil servant workforce is there to deliver services in a totally nonpartisan way? It can be a real tension at times. I spend a decent amount of time on the book, a whole chapter about good governance, Tom, and really good governance drives good alignment and decision-making across an agency if it's done well. And I, I bring up that term alignment because too often I would find that executives, sometimes politicals and a career, you know, they're kind of at cross purposes, to your point, uh, with each other. And that's very hurtful for any organization. So you need to work to drive alignment within an agency. And by bringing people together in the right kind of governance model where you've set up the right level of boards, you delegate decision-making in the right way. These are large organizations, typically. Even a mid-sized federal government agency is larger than most corporations. So you need to deal with this and, and you need to delegate and set up. Uh, I'm huge on portfolio management and governance because we don't do enough of that in government. I mean, you've got too many things going right to the top. I saw this in DHS and spades. I mean, I was sat on the investment review board. We were trying to oversight 120 major programs. I mean, you, you can't do that effectively. That makes no sense. So there's a lot there on the governance side to try to drive alignment. And I do believe, and I saw it happen, that you can get alignment many times between politicals and career execs. But you got to work at it, right? It's not going to just happen. You really need to work on it. And those politicals coming in need to respect and understand that these career executives are there for the mission. As you say, they're not there for the politics. They're there to deliver for the U.S. citizen. And I think that needs to be respected and championed even. And maybe the best way for the overseers to handle things is to just look at the metrics and make sure those are met and make sure that the bureaucracy is performing in a way to give out those metrics. But the question then becomes, what are the right metrics? Again, to get back to the issue of the waste and abuse that happened in all of these pandemic relief programs, the extent of which is still coming to light, the metric was, well, let's get the money out there fast and maybe a different metric. You get what you measure, basically. Yeah, I have a chapter in the book around operations, and, and one of the attributes for good operations is to define a comprehensive set of metrics 
than appropriate for whatever the operation may be. And to your point, I mean, it's rarely one metric, and it's usually going to be a, a collection of a few key metrics in order to be able to understand what's really going on in an operation. And I talk a lot about then using those metrics and really improving your operations. I think that's another thing that I'd like to see government agencies do a lot more of is really work to make both incremental improvements, Lean Six Sigma, things like that, drive the waste out of operations, but then also reimagine things. I mean, with today's digital technologies, I mean, you talk about digital transformation, it, it may be an overused term, but it's, I think, still an appropriate one where we really can reimagine what you can do today. And too many agencies, for cultural reasons, mainly, in, in my view, they're not aggressive enough in, in really looking at their operations and how do they improve. And a final question on the workforce. You devote a lot of writing to the workforce issue. That seems like the most important thing really for career managers to deal with is yeah. workforce planning, which you know, has not really been a strong suit for the government. Yeah, good point. I, in fact, I, I talk about eight solution functions to address uh, you know, getting agencies to be more effective and efficient. And the, the very first one is uh, the employees, the workforce. And to your point, one of the things in the model that I espouse, you, you really, for key positions across the agency, and this isn't just the top managers, I mean, it could be at all levels, you really do need to define what we call the knowledge, skills, and abilities, the KSAs that go with a position and, and develop learning paths and develop, if you will, career paths for individuals to effectively be able to fill key roles within an agency on the career side. And again, to your point, I, I just don't see it changing much. I've been involved closely with government for 20 plus years, and I hate to say it, but it doesn't look like we've made much progress in this particular area of human capital development across the government. Well, maybe people will read your book and get after it. Richard Spires is former IRS and Homeland Security CIO, consultant, technologist, and author of Government Can Deliver. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra trajectory in many ways, and that is... At my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, 
and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that 
suited me well, they are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence. Because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles. I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can. And the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. 
And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in <laughs> or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point. If you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And and just to understand that especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and 
and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.